0: hello and welcome back to another edition of physical media isn't dead it just smells funny this is the one year anniversary of physical media isn't dead it just smells funny and i don't know what to really say about it i've kind of fallen backwards into doing these reviews despite being the one who wanted to do them in the first place this all kind of started with me just wanting to very much review the complete films of agnes varda box set from the criterion collection and once i got to do that i just decided well i may as well try to keep people engaged with art house cinema and foreign cinema and the little oddities i'm always trying to discover myself and preach to people about, and it's just kind of grown and grown and grown to this thing that I can't imagine not doing anymore. I've gotten a lot of pleasure out of doing it, and I've gotten to work with some very cool people, not just including the wonderful guests that I've had on in the past year to talk about things, but also just the distributors I've gotten to work with. This started really very much with just Criterion Collection and Kino Lorber and now it's grown to such labels as Cohen Film Media Group, Code Red Films, Arrow Video, Fun City Editions, of course, the list just keeps going on and on and on, G Kids, and it's been great working with all these people and I really hope that all of you listening have gotten something out of it or found at least one film that you would have otherwise overlooked or Upgraded a film that you've had on your shelf in, you know, not great quality, and you've gotten a better version of it, or if you've just enjoyed seeing what's going on in the world of physical media distribution, which is such a niche thing at this point that if you're just kind of listening to see what's going on, I applaud you because that is a niche hobby on top of a niche hobby. Um, <laughs> so mentioning all those great distributors i've gotten to work with we actually have two new distributors this month first we have imprint films which is a uk-based distributor who specializes in doing a lot of region free editions of a wide spectrum of films there's some people that i have wanted to court for a while uh, after someone had put them on my radar and we have three films from them this month, two great releases. They were supposed to be here in September, but just due to international shipping and delays, they're now just getting here. But I think they're also just kind of getting here for, you know, US customers. So they're still in stock. You can still buy these films. But we have imprint films, which I'm very excited about. And we have the oft asked for Vinegar Syndrome, which I was very excited to get in contact with after interviewing Jonathan Hertzberg at Fun City Editions. And we have quite a major release from them, which I felt very lucky to get. Probably one of their more popular releases from their recent Black Friday uh, sale that they do every year. So I'm excited to talk about that. A soon to be cult classic is what I'll tease for it. And we have some of our usual suspects. We have. Kino Lorber? with another television show I'm excited to talk about. And we have releases from Aero Video. You know, I love Japanese film, so it's been great getting these Japanese films from Arrow Video, but we have two long-awaited to come to the stateside Japanese films, very cult films, very niche films that I'm excited to talk about. So without further ado, we'll get things started with Kino Lorber's release of the 1962 John Huston-directed biopic about Sigmund Freud Freud. Oh Dr Freud, Dr Freud, Dr Freud, Dr Freud, how we wish you had been differently employed. I have a complicated relationship with biopics. I feel like I've written about this a few times over the course of my very short write of film writing career. But like most people have pointed out and I'm not saying anything new here, the biopic itself as a art form and a format which people use to tell stories about these larger than life figures often kind of falls into a category that I would call rote at this point. And it's kind of insane to me that in a post-walk-hard Dewey Cox story world, we still occasionally get these biopics that are made that follow the same. We're going to start at the beginning of someone's life as a child, experience their trauma, them breaking into show business, them getting addicted to drugs and sex. Reuniting back with the people that made them what they are, and then the triumphant reunion or big event concert. I mean, that was very much like a music biopic thing, but I would say that most biopics, to an extent, kind of follow this. (laughs) And even besides those tropes, I just think that the hagiography involved. It never serves the film as much as you want it to serve the film. I have a very few handful of like biopics that I would consider to be great and you know I don't know if I would call Freud a great movie, but it certainly does something interesting with the form in that it's using Sigmund Freud's discovery and exploration into psychoanalytics. It makes it part of the story. So what this is, is that this does not pick up from Freud's childhood, although there are flashbacks to his childhood because, you know, it's Freud, so they're obviously getting into the idea of the Oedipus complex and relationships to your mother and father and your sexual psychology, these are all very much present in the movie. But it takes place as Freud is examining patients with a cadre of other psychologists and discovering that there are some ties between trauma experienced in your youth and how that intersects with your sexuality and your own physical well-being and how all these things get kind of mixed up together and explores two patients. Well, I should also mention, Freud is played by the great Montgomery Clift in what I think is his second to last role. And he has two patients, one exploring with that Oedipus complex, David McCollum, who you best know from The Great Escape, and Susanna York from The Killing of Sister George. Fun fact about this movie, Susanna York's part was supposed to be played by Marilyn Monroe because this was kind of going to be a misfits reunion uh, with John Huston and Montgomery Clift and Marilyn Monroe. But Susanna York is excellent in this movie. And instead of going through the very rote tropes of him as a little kid with his mother, it really kind of flashes back. There's a lot of portrayals of the psychology through dreams. There's a lot of dream analysis in this movie, but it's a lot of Freud listening to his patients and you get imaginings of what is happening within their mind. The realities that you see are completely subjective to the patient telling the stories, and then it all kind of loops back around to how that ties into Freud himself and the pushback he got from the psychologist community about these is a great like harumph harumph, everyone booing him as he's talking about, you know, the Oedipus complex, electro complexes and all those things. A great scene. It really does kind of, I remember reading a review of this movie about how it uses uh, actual tenets of psychology within the way it's portraying certain scenes of the movie now i won't get into that mostly because i don't write these and i would i don't want to say the wrong thing but from my understanding is that there are some practices in psychology or schools of thought that are portrayed in this movie in some of the scenes in which he is talking to some of his patients or within himself when you see the surreal kind of dreams that he is having and to me, along with how, st- this is a new film from 1962, the black and white photography from D.P. Douglas Slocum, who you probably best know from the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the way it's filmed kind of add to that ethereal dreamy quality to the movie. So even when you're sure you're in reality and not someone subjectively recounting of your childhood, you're still put off kilter by it. It does feel strange. So, it's kind of interesting to me that along with those visuals and John Huston, who... I don't know if you'd call him the world's greatest journeyman director. It's funny. I don't consider John Huston an auteur, except for an auteur of making very good, very different types of movies. I'm sure someone out there who's moved well versus old Hollywood would disagree and say there's all these auteur's qualities to John Huston. But I love him, and this is a feather in his cap. But originally, this screenplay, while written by Charles Kaufman and Wolfgang Reinhardt, was originally going to be written by philosopher John Paul Sartre. They were trying to go out of their way to not make a By the Numbers biopic at this point. This has been a problem that's plagued Hollywood for a long time. And the studio hated the screenplay, it got tossed out. I don't know if there are elements that like made it into the movie. He did not like Freud at all, so I'm sure there's some antagonism to the way the screenplay actually worked out. But I feel like as the movie we got it's To me, very good illustration of what you can do with the form of a biopic, and, you know, just excellent performances. Like, Montgomery Cliff's obviously such a standout in this movie, playing Freud, and this is his second-to-last role, but Susanna York's part in this movie, man, it's great. And I could see Marilyn Monroe actually playing this part very easily, but Susanna York absolutely crushes it. So if that at all interests you, I know Freud is a prickly topic even amongst people. Art in the uh, psychologist community or study psychoanalytics. But I had a good time with this movie. I think the performances, the look of it, and the way it all plays out, I enjoy quite a bit. I would say it goes on my shelf of maybe not great biopics, but very, very good biopics. So if that interests you, it comes with an audio commentary from film historian Tim Lucas, a Trailers from Hell segment with screenwriter Howard Rodman, and a theatrical trailer. So You can find that on Kino Lorber. I'm Rod Serling. I would like to invite you to join me for the telling of three stories represented in this gallery by these paintings to be displayed here for the first time. Each is a collector's item in its own way, not because of any special artistic quality, but because each captures on a canvas, suspends in time and space, a frozen moment in a nightmare. next up we have the second television show that i have reviewed for this podcast which is it's been great like doing cold check was a a nice foray into a part of film and television history that doesn't i don't think gets discussed a lot which is why i love what fun city editions does but night gallery is what we'll be talking about today they have put out season one of night gallery the follow-up to Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone. It's often not looked at with the most positive eyes. It was kind of canceled midway through its third season. There's a great special feature on this disc, and I'll get into what Night Gallery is in a second, but there's a great special feature on this disc called Syndication Conundrum, about how they would take these hour-long episodes and cut them up into half-hour-long episodes so that it could make syndication, but because Night Gallery isn't a complete, like, each segment is 19 minutes long or something like that. They had to either drastically shorten some segments or find ways to pad other segments because these segments in Night Gallery episodes can range anywhere between like 15 minutes and like 40 minutes, at least to my knowledge. But what is Night Gallery? Well, as I said, it's the follow-up to Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone. It's a little more horror-tinged than The Twilight Zone. It's a little more EC Comics, a little more O. Henry type stories uh, where characters get their ins, or there's just a surreal, strange things that happen to them. There's a lot of irony. Uh, (laughs) And the other reason I requested this specifically is because it is such a large part of uh, film history, because of all the tremendous talent involved. Obviously, you have Rod Serling, who is still hosting this show and writing for it. He actually writes one of the best episodes of this entire season, which is they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar which is also one of the few episodes that doesn't make you spiral into an existential crisis. But you have directors like Daryl Duke of The Silent Partner, Barry Shear who directed Across 110th Street, a personal favorite of mine, Don Taylor, uh, who directed The Island of Dr. Moreau, and of course, Steven Spielberg, who famously directed a segment in the pilot with Joan Crawford. And in addition to all those directors, and we have great performances from Ossie Davis, Larry Hagman, Diane Keaton, Roddy McDowell, Burgess Meredith, Agnes Moorhead, Joanna Pettit, Diane Baker, Tom Bosley, Jack Hesity. Just a wellspring of like character actors and 70s, uh, late 60s actors who are in their prime or about to pop or just young and it's exciting to see them on such a film like this so that is why i decided to bring this in addition to that the way television shows like this were filmed in the late 60s and 70s it's like i think i mentioned this on the cold review there's a lot of production value and a lot of great staging put into these like I think we tend to think of TV as like, especially from this era, to be like a very cheap medium. But I think with anthology shows like this, especially ones that have such a strong guiding hand of a Rod Serling where there is an authorial voice, when you do bring on directors for things like this, especially directors who are making Hollywood films, they tend to add their own flair to it. The (laughs) first of the two episodes directed by Steven Spielberg He's just tossing all the tricks. Like, he's just tossing everything at the wall. He's doing every young filmmaker trick in the book. Like, I think they like to say, like, he's putting the camera up people's noses. Just a lot of moving the camera, a lot of optical effects, a lot of trying to tell a visual story as opposed to letting just the dialogue dictate things. It's wonderful to watch. So that is why I wanted to bring Night Gallery. And in addition to a lot like the Kolchek episodes, this first season has audio commentaries for every single episode on the disc, which I have not gotten around to listening, but that's a very rare thing on a television release these days that used to be more common back in like the DVD boom. It's nice to have experts or even people who have written or involved with these shows giving you context as to what's happening and who these people are and the careers of the people in front of and behind the camera and maybe because these are horror and like almost kind of science fiction tinge stories. It's kind of nice to know what the zeitgeist of the day was as you watch things like this. Some of that stuff can get lost to time as we move further and further away from the late 20th century. So that all interests you. As I mentioned before, there are audio commentaries for every single episode of the show featuring various experts and historians on every episode. And as I said, there's a special feature Uh, a 50 minute special feature called The Syndication Conundrum, which looks at the show's troubled second life in reruns. It's a feature by film historian Craig Beam. And just to tell you what that kind of is, he kind of goes into all the ways that they chopped and screwed and redistributed the show and it's like troubled three season run and then also gives you a side-by-side of an episode in which they have cut so much out of the episode so you can see exactly what went into that. It's a fascinating special feature. And other than that, yeah, you can expect the other releases of this show to come out in 2022. At least that's what it was said on the Syndication Conundrum (laughs) special feature. Uh, You won't have to wait four years in between releases like I guess the DVD did. So you can find Night Gallery season one on Kino Lorber. And finally, from Kino Lorber, we have a film that I requested based on the pedigree behind it and just how charming and delightfully offbeat it looked. John G. Avildsen's follow-up to Rocky, a 1978 film. Slow Dancing in the Big City is a romantic drama. It stars Paul Sorvino, who you probably most know from Goodfellas. As a reporter who's kind of a a Rumpel type, is what you would call him. Uh, I would say that if you were to remake this movie today, you'd cast Mark Ruffalo <laughs> in this role. But he is a reporter who's kind of more on the ground for things. He has a lot of sway with the community. Everyone seems to know him. He's, by all accounts, a great writer, helps people out. There's a great scene where there's a, an unhoused man, which he, like, leverages an interview into getting a cop to find him some like housing and clothing and food and shelter and it's great. He's a reporter with a heart of gold. He looks out for the neighborhood and he looks out for the people in it. His love life isn't necessarily bad, but it also isn't the best. He has kind of a very casual thing with a bartender named Franny, played by Anita Dangler, who very much wants to marry him, but he himself is just so married to his job and likes her company well enough, but doesn't love her the same way. This all kind of takes a turn when all of a sudden this young, beautiful dancer named Serganz, played by Ann Ditchburn, who is a real life ballerina, moves into his apartment building and uh, they begin to start a rapport, which then turns into a romance. The thing about Sarah, unfortunately, though, is that you find out early on in the movie that she has a degenerative, debilitating condition that eventually she just won't be able to dance anymore. And I like this movie a lot. I don't know how well regarded it is. I don't think it's very well regarded, if I'm being honest. But for me, this is a fascinating movie for many different reasons. One, Paul Sorvino, not really a traditional romantic interest slash male lead in a romantic movie he is great I love Paul Sorvino he's just not traditional and for me that is a plus in this case two casting a real life ballerina into this movie while a novice actress I think she's quite good I think there's she carries a level of melancholy about her that plays very well on camera and then also makes the Swan Lake arranged um or Swan Lake inspired ballet that Uh, composer Bill Conti also famous for Rocky it makes those scenes play out insanely well especially the rehearsal scenes and in addition to this it's kind of just a shaggy film like it kind of goes from scene to scene it's him interacting with all these like characters within the neighborhood and it's all interwoven with this great little and I you know i say this is a positive Rocky-esque story about a young woman who has to face the reality that she won't be able to do this forever and the man facing this reality that while he is married to his work, he has feelings for this woman and she has feelings for him. I find there seems very charming. It's very much that he's kind of just a working everyday guy and you know she comes from, ballet is considered high art and she comes from that world and opposites attract and all that. But it has the thing that is more present in Creed than is in Rocky but also President Rocky in that in Creed you have Tessa Thompson who also has a degenerative hearing condition and it's kind of about this like doomed thing of these two people whose bodies because in the case of Michael B. Jordan in that movie like his body is eventually going to break down you can't box forever and her hearing's going to break down which means she can't make music forever. It's also very reminiscent of Adrian and Rocky and all of the Rocky movies except for in that case, it's like two people who society has given up on essentially finding like love and solace within each other. But I think I could see why John G. Avildsen made this movie after Rocky. Seemed like he was probably taken with the romance of Adrian and Rocky in that movie and probably just wanted to expand it out into a feature-length film. And whereas that is the big, biggest concern. That isn't to say that the dancing part of this movie isn't full blown and you aren't getting those sequences, but it's less concerned with the can this woman go the distance and more can these two people find some peace within each other. So I found this movie very charming and I'm kind of going on a limb recommending it cause like as I said, I don't think it's particularly well regarded, I quite enjoy this. It's the first time it's been given a proper release. And if you are a fan of Rocky like I am, I think you will find a lot to like about this movie. Like I said, the best parts about it are when it's shaggy, kind of like when Rocky's doing shaggy things in that film, whether you know, it's just like him hanging out with Polly or whatever. I like the movie a lot. It wasn't a big hit, so please take a chance on it. Once again, that's slow dancing in the big city, and that comes with special features, including an interview from actor Nicholas Coster who plays in Ditchburn's other romantic interesting movie, and an interview with composer Bill Conti, which I got a lot of insight on, including that John G. Avildsen wanted to, well, had originally requested that he make the ballet featured in the movie a little bit more modern, and then eventually came to the conclusion that he just kind of wanted a, a version of Swan Lake, which I found amusing, which kind of, you know, composers working with directors, directors don't always know what they want, and it's funny when a composer's just like a, oh, you just want this, so. And it comes with an original trailer. So once again, that is slow dancing in the big city, available from Kino Lorber. Next up, we have new addition to the roundup. We have imprint films, a like I said, a UK distributor specializing in all region films from all corners of the world. And kicking things off, we have their release of the 1969. British assassins comedy? The Assassination Bureau Limited. I am Ivan Dragamilo. Are you the head of this organization? Sir. What could be more natural than for a son to inherit the family business? Business? You're a gang of murderers. Our proper title is the Assassination Bureau Limited. The Assassination Bureau Limited stars Diana Rigg and Oliver Reed, just looking very smoochable. I think young Oliver Reed is very attractive, and I also think uh, young Diana Rigg is very, very attractive. But it is a kind of a romp directed by Basil Dearden, and if you don't know who Basil Dearden is, he's kind of famous. For being known as kind of this stuffy director, or at least having that reputation, Uh, I reviewed one of his films on here, The Blue Lamp, not too long ago. But he also had forays into, you know, the London Underground genre film. I think Criterion released a four-disc set that has those films on it, which include like Sapphire and Victim and The League of Gentlemen. And as I learned from a special feature by a film commentator and historian Kim Newman, this comes from an era of the late, like the swinging 60s transitioning to the more lurid 70s where you're getting a lot of these comedies and romps that are like overly long, overstuffed with cameos, incredible cast of main players, movies in which like you very much would love to put on on a Sunday afternoon and you're not really necessarily not paying attention to it but you are more admiring like the set design, the jokes you do catch, the chaos and mania of it all. And (laughs) what this movie is about is about Diana Rigg coming to Oliver Reed who is, well Diana Rigg is a reporter, going to Oliver Reed who is the chairman of an assassin's bureau And she essentially asks him to assassinate the head of the League of Assassins. And what ensues is Oliver Reed honors her request and it is up to the other members of this bureau to try to take down Oliver Reed. All the while, Diana Rigg and Oliver Reed are forming kind of a romance. She's kind of a proto-feminist within the movie. The movie does get into her own sexual Proclivities and his, and so there's like a romance there, very sexually charged romance. It's even a scene that takes place in a bordello, which I'm sure is very problematic, but the film itself is a great time. I know, as I said, Kim Newman kind of describes this era of like British comedies as being kind of overstuffed and a lot going on, but because the costume and set design is so good, you don't really care. And also, if you do know this, these like uncredited cameos of this overstuffed cast, like, you'll probably get a kick out of this. Sadly, I'm not as well versed in British film as I would like to be, but I'm a very big fan of the work of Diana Rigg and Oliver Reed and Telly Zavalis, who was also in this movie. And as I said, I'm sure there are like cameos by other people people who are more into British film will be into. But I enjoy how madcap it all is. I enjoy that it's very, 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 very silly and I enjoy the aesthetic. I also enjoy this movie because no one knows how to use any other method for assassination other than a bomb. (laughs) I kind of describe this movie as John Wick 2, except everyone has to use a bomb to kill John Wick, (laughs) Uh, which I know is kind of part of the charm and comedy of the movie. I just find it very funny in a movie about a league of assassins. There isn't a larger variety of assassination tools but that aside or rather not aside actually like i said i think it's very charming if you enjoy these like light romps from the late 60s and if you are into this fun fact that this is actually a movie or a based on a book that is an unfinished book by jack london who you will know from call of the wild and white fang it was an unfinished book that was finished by robert fish and it was it wasn't finished mostly because he found it kind of frivolous, I think. Uh it wasn't like a Dickens thing where like he just literally passed away in the middle of like writing this thing. So if you're into that little fun fact and you're into these sixties kind of swinging London or if you're into steampunk or you're just into these actors and actresses and this whole vibe and aesthetic, I think you will like this movie. I think this movie has some gorgeous title cards with like Black like white text on a black background with these like rings of flowers in different colors. It's gorgeous to look at like the rest of the movie is. So, along with, as I said, an aforementioned special feature with uh, commentator Kim Newman, an audio commentary by film historian Kevin Lyons, and Diana Rig A Tribute, a visual essay by film historian Kat Ellinger, along with theatrical trailer and photo gallery, you can find this on imprint films. And our other title from Imprint Films, we have a box set which includes both versions of The Browning Version. The Browning Version in its original form is a one-act play by playwright Terence Rattigan, which is about a man named Andrew Crocker Harris, who is a classics teacher at an English boys' school. He's not very popular amongst the staff and uh, students. He is believed to have very fascistic attitudes about education. He's grumpy. He's quiet. He really only seems to ever come alive when he is teaching classics and Greek texts to his students. And then in addition to all these things, he's friends with one of the more popular teachers at school. He's also about to retire due to his ill health and go to a different school. And his wife and him are having some marital troubles and she is also stepping out with somebody else, another faculty member at the school. This all kind of changes, not really changes, but all kind of comes to a head when one of his students, John Taplau, comes to him and essentially is like, look, I want to like this guy. And he takes it upon himself to give Andrew Crocker Harris a translation of Robert Browning's ancient play Agamemnon because Andrew Crocker Harris himself had done a translation of the text in his childhood or in his younger days. He never finished it, but, you know, he enjoys the subtleties and the differences that come from these adaptations of translating text to bring out the character in the text or to, you know, add your own flair to it. And what follows is you're seeing essentially a man hit rock bottom because he's so, he's like a, a clenched jaw of a person like he's clearly pushing so much down in himself and he's been doing it for a very long time and he's not blind to what's happening with his wife and he you know not blind to how much the students and faculty don't really enjoy his presence at the school and this one moment of kindness kind of takes the rest of this play and this move well the rest of this move, these movies and you see kind of this redemptive arc, as like he kind of makes starts making decisions about what he wants the rest of his life to be. And I say this because this is a one-act play, whereas the two movies, the 1951 version starring Michael Redgrave, by Anthony Asquith, and the 1994 version by Mike Figgis, who you probably mostly know from Leaving Las Vegas. And this one stars Albert Finney as Crocker Harris there are more acts besides the first act of play. I think the play actually ends after he's given the adaptation of Agamemnon by uh, Taplow, and, you know, he kind of breaks down emotionally. But the movies expand from there and I enjoyed watching both of these back to back. I had never seen either one of them. Like I said, mostly knew Mike Figgis' career from leaving Las Vegas and I'm obviously a huge fan of Albert Finney, but not really as familiar with the works of Anthony Asquith. I do know he's pretty famous for his adaptation of The Important of Being Earnest from 1952, but I don't think I had seen anything by this director. Also haven't really even seen that many Michael Redgrave performances. And it's interesting, obviously when you watch these back-to-back like I did, you get to see the similarities and differences, but I think the real interesting similarities and differences are the way that Michael Redgrave and Albert Finney decide to portray Crocker Harris. Michael Redgrave's performance I find a little bit more interesting because there's this subtext within this film that no one says it or even implies it, but he feels like he is a closeted gay man. And once you learn that the writer of the play is himself gay, It kind of makes sense. I think there's even a line somewhere in the movie where he kind of talks about like pushing down parts of himself that he wouldn't otherwise push down. And that's where that clenched jaw comparison comes from. The way Michael Redgrave plays it is more of a clenched jaw. Albert Finney's take on this performance is interesting because Albert Finney himself is such a warm presence. He's kind of playing against type. He's such a likable person. You like truly want to just hang out with Albert Finney. He decides to play him as someone who has lost whatever flair or the things that drove him into the profession of education in the first place. He's lost something. He isn't pushing anything down. It seems like he's just been kind of going through life rotely. And it's interesting with the people that are cast around him within the out, you know, the Mike Vegas version from 1994, Matthew Modine is playing his good friend, which is an interesting choice, having an American be like a school teacher in Britain in, uh, in the mid the mid 20th century. But it's certainly a different take than the Anthony Asquith version. The Anthony Asquith version of this film feels very like insular and contained. It's There's way more scenes of people just kind of talking to each other in like very chambery settings. Whereas the Mike Figgis version is like, very sweeping score, and there's a lot more outside activities happening, a lot more scenes with just the children talking about Crocker Harris to themselves. There's more. There's a more subplot with Taplow in that movie, whereas the Anthony Asquith version is very much just about Crocker Harris and his wife and his friend. I love them both actually kind of equally. If you had to put a gun to my head and ask which performance I enjoyed better, I honestly enjoy Michael Redgrave's version better but there is something about that early 90s British, everything is golden toned and comfy look and feel that I enjoy a ton. So I have a soft spot in my heart from that. And I also just love Albert Finney so much. Also, you get Michael Gambon, who plays the headmaster at this school, which I can't assume how they were casting Harry Potter movies in the early aughts, but it seems as if Maybe whoever was casting those movies uh, when he had to step up for the role were like, uh, he did great in (laughs) the Browning version. I'm sure if I looked it up, I would find an answer to that. I find both of them very fascinating. These are very warm movies. I would recommend them to anybody. It makes me want to check out more of Anthony Asquith's work. Uh, Actually, also makes me want to read the original version of the Browning version. So, as I said, that is on imprint films, and if you want more context uh, to both these movies and how they differ, on the first disc, containing the 1951 version of the film, you have an audio commentary by historians Joe Boating and Melanie Williams, as well as Matthew Sweet on the Browning versions, where he goes about how these differ given that the times they were made in and the trends in cinema happening at the time and, and how that influences how they differ. On the disc with the 1994 version, you get a audio commentary by Peter Tonget, as well as an audio interview with Albert Finney biographer Gabriel Hirschman, and a feature called The Arts of Learning Scoring the Browning Version, an interview with composer Mark Isham, and no less and certainly no more Matthew Modine on the Browning version, and the Guardian archival interview with Mike Figgis from 1997, as well as a theatrical trailer. So if either of those interest you, you can check those out on Imprint Films. I can't recommend them enough. I hope they stick around for another month. Next up from Arrow Video, we have two Japanese films who've been waiting to have their stateside debut for quite some time. We have the 1968 film by camera director Noriaki Uasa, *The Snake Girl* and *The Silver-haired Witch*. <laughs> So as I just mentioned, Noriaki Uasa is most famous for his work at DA Studios, who I mentioned last month uh, for my Yokai Collection box set review. They are the ones who did that, and they're also most famously the ones who did Gamera. Uasa is essentially the most prolific of all the Gamera directors, meaning that he directed most of them, at least the ones from that particular era. It's interesting to see what other films that he made besides that because he's mostly known as the camera director. And this is a film that we don't really make anymore, which are horror films aimed specifically at children. This is a story that is both a mixture of yokai and folk myths in Japan, mostly concerning the yokai of the snake woman and then a manga from manga artist Kazuo Umezu, who created a manga which in America is known as Reptilian, and that tells the story of a snake girl, (laughs) for, you know, just to sum it up, unfortunately I've never read this manga, but after watching this movie, very much would like to. It's kind of a combination of those two things where the silver-haired witch, you know, yokai myth is its own thing but that uh, similar to how like Grimm's fairy tales as is described to me one of the special features on this film it kind of makes the stepmother or mother the villain of the story like how we do in Grimm's fairy tales and <laughs> it's combining that with this snake girl manga about like girl who transforms into this like reptilian creature that like preys on people and it's a mashup of those two things but how is it a mashup of those two things well it tells the story of this little girl who gets adopted back into this family after it comes to light that she is the original child like she got mixed up with somebody else at birth and so who's currently living in the house is this girl who is very mean, uh, does not enjoy having this new girl around, uh, very much plays the like bullying big sister, Where this new girl is just like taking everything in stride. There's no amount of abuse you can throw at her that she won't just like shrug off and just go about her day with. In addition to that, there is a housekeeper who seems to be up to no good. From there, it is a horror film that is about what it is like, probably how weird it is to be adopted into a family that you don't know much about and having an older sibling who doesn't like you and finding your place in a family that may not have a place for you. But I would be remiss to not say that, yes, this is, there's a lot of great horror practical effects in this movie, especially the snake transformations. But there is a certain level of camp to this movie. Uh, <laughs> there's a great scene at some point near the end where there's a, there's a nice little dummy fall off of a building that I just just made me laugh and laugh and laugh. But I wanted to talk about this film because this is a type of movie we don't make anymore, which are horror films aimed squarely at children. The PG horror movie, I feel like, is a lost art form. And so it's nice seeing that this one from Japan from the late 60s. I've also just been enjoying delving deeper into the yokai myths and Japanese folklore. So after the yokai box set that released in October, this feels like a great little follow-up to that to kind of continue that study. So if you're at all interested in Japanese folklore or... Core meant for children. I would actually love if anybody buys this and they have kids and they show it to them. I'd love to see a child's reaction to this movie. I don't know if maybe it plays a little too slow, being in black and white and a little bit more deliberately paced, although I had, a, like I said, I had a great time with this movie. I would be curious to hear back from you. But if you're at all interested in that, this comes with some special features, including an audio commentary by historian David Collat. This Charming Woman, a newly filmed interview with manga and folklore scholar Zach Davidson, theatrical trailer, image gallery, there's some new artwork for the release of the film. And if you pick up the film during its first run, there is an essay called Coils of Trauma, The Symbolism of a Snake Girl by Rafael Coronelli. So I would highly recommend picking up the film as quickly as possible. I know Arrow tends to not do not keep these essays in print for like reprints of the movie and I got a lot out of reading this essay and watching that special feature with Zach Davidson. So you can find The Snake Girl and The Silver-Haired Witch on Arrow Video. And next up from Arrow Video what was almost my pick of the month because I was not expecting this to be as much of a stew of ideas as as it is we have the 1981 film by director Shinji Somai, Sailor Suit in Machine Gun Now if you hear that title and you're like, oh well, I'm in you had the same reaction as I did when this first got announced. I had, didn't know what this movie was at all but I do have a special interest in Japanese cinema. Like I guess like 80s and 90s Japanese cinema very specifically because so much of my knowledge of Japanese cinema is like the like 40s, 50s, 60s and then the 80s when there felt like there was a big boom of like Japanese films making their way stateside. I think probably partially due to Quentin Tarantino's influence after making Kill Bill if I had to guess why that was happening. But the 80s is like a period of cinema in Japan that I'm not as well versed in, so I very much knew I wanted to watch this as soon as it got announced, and I was kind of expecting something to be a little bit more girls with guns, and a little bit more like over the top, maybe a high dosage of camp involved, a high dosage of violence, and not that that's what drew me to the film, that's just what I was expecting. I wasn't expecting this to be a somewhat like, and not that he has any influence on this film, kind of. Jim Jarmusch-esque like remixing, like low-key remixing of like a lot of different things. And so before I get into what those things that are being remixed are, this tells the story of a girl whose father used to run a small Yakuza, a small section of the Yakuza. He passes away. She inherits this gang. It's a small gang. It's not the most well-run gang, while all having troubles at school and trying to come of age herself. So this movie is a coming of age story mixed with a Yakuza story, there's the aforementioned machine gun, and another element of this you wouldn't expect is that it's shot so interestingly by Seizo Sengen, who does a lot of these like slow languid long takes and like finds the like beauty in the lighting of Japan at night and staging people like in the foreground and background. There's long tracking shots that like transition and reveal into like a whole nother segment of the film. And the energy of the film isn't as this like pitched like high octane like her just like mowing down people with machine guns as a matter of fact i don't mean to spoil the movie for you there's really just the one scene with the machine gun and it doesn't play out the way you expect it to play out and so what the movie is is that you have a lot of these like so-called gangsters and like sex workers and people involved in the yakuza either trying to exploit this girl or trying to protect her from being exploited all the while she's trying to figure out who she is as a person and like what she wants which is not what you would expect from a movie called Sailor Suit and Machine Gun. So I think this movie rips and not in the way that it like, you'll be pumping your fist while watching it. I just think it's one of those cool little discoveries that subverts your expectations as to what it will be, uh, which is kind of one of my favorite things to discover doing this podcast. If you have any interest in that, this is, like I said, almost my pick of the month. I enjoyed it immensely. There's a lot of great special features package with this there is girls guns and gangsters shinji somai and sailor suit machine gun exclusive new 50 minute documentary featuring actor akira emoto film scholar chika kinoshita somai biographer tatsuya kimura and sailor suit assistant director koji inokido there also is three essay well, two essays and an interview in the booklet. Like I said, these arrow releases tend to only do first-run pressings of this, so if you are interested in this, I would pick it up. ASAP. There is Sailor Suit and Machine Gun or Samine Baroko, which is kind of about the film itself, more of an overarching essay. There is Sailor Suit and Katakawa, which is an essay about the production studio that put this out, the films that it was making at the time, kind of this small film studio, considered a joke when it first started, uh, and just kind of how it's rise to somewhat some prominence. And there is Hiroko Yakushimaru and Kiyoshi Kurosawa in conversation. Kyoshi Kurosawa, who actually did a written review of his most recent film Wife of a Spy on the blog for this month's round of reviews, uh, also known for his uh, horror movies Cure and Pulse along with many other types of films, he was an assistant director on this film. And Hiroko Yakushimura is the idol star who plays the, the titular sailor suit holding the machine gun. Um, I forgot to mention that there's a thing called like idol culture in Japan which just like pop stars and models who like their faces are like plastered everywhere and they have huge followings. She is the star of this film and they have a conversation of what it was like to work on this film at the time, which is something I'd love to delve more into the idea of like Japanese idol cinema. You can find Sailor Suit and Machine Gun on Aero Video. Next up, we have our next new distributor, which I'm so happy to finally join us. We have Vinegar Syndrome, and what is one of their biggest releases of the year? New York Ninja. Abductions of young women are still being reported, another woman with mysterious radiation burns has been discovered. We're gonna have a baby. Oh my god. I can't believe that John's wife was murdered! You have to try and pull yourself together. This city owes me. Well what's that? Justice. Why won't anyone do anything? Anyway, we are strong on crime, and together we have the power. This is a big city. We're doing what we can. <laughs> uh, what, you what, you do? what happened? Is, it, is you okay? What? <speed> uh, oh, what? <fire> what? <laughs> <inaudible> Vinegar Syndrome, kind of known for what I would say are is more like horror-focused or like schlocky action films softcore porno, hardcore porno, art house porno, and everything that kind of fits into that, like kitschy 80s movies and 90s movies. They did two excellent releases that, one I have not watched yet, but I'm so excited to watch, uh, which is Surf 2, the end of the trilogy. And it's the only movie of the Surf trilogy that exists. Uh, And a personal favorite of mine, Six String Samurai, which comes in this handsome package, which is the same thing as New York Ninja. but. This is part of a new line that they've started called VSP, which means Vinegar Syndrome Pictures, because they are making movies now. And the story behind this movie is the biggest selling point of this movie. This is a lost and found movie. This is a movie originally starring and directed by John Liu, who is a martial artist and actor, most famous for the secret rivals and invincible armor. Due to circumstances, was filmed in 1984, but it was never finished. It was abandoned, and Vinegar Syndrome had bought all the negatives to this film, and rewriter and redirector Curtis M. Spieler took it upon himself to take the negatives, the raw footage, reassemble it. It had no audio track to it, which means that the entire movie had to be overdubbed, and it's overdubbed by a lot of. Vinegar Syndrome regulars, just meaning films that have been released in the Vinegar Syndrome with actors and actresses that are very well known. There's Don the Dragon Wilson, there's Cynthia Rothrock, there is Vince Murdoko, just to name a few uh, famous voices and faces, well, mostly voices in this case, but famous faces and voices in this film. Kurt took it upon himself to re-edit this movie, rewrite a script to overdub a story into it, and try to respect the era in which it was being made in without, you know, tipping its hand too far into irony. And this to me is a very, you know, there's Netflix doing the other side of the wind for Orson Welles, and then there's Vinegar Syndrome doing New York Ninja. But this is all to say, I am so happy at how successful this movie is walking that fine line because one worries about a movie like this uh, in these like lost, like cult oddities. Like, there are things like The Miami Connection, which was like a lost and found movie, and that's obviously not like a reconstruction in any way. And, you know, a lot of enjoyment comes from the irony of that movie. Lord knows I'm a big Andy Sedaris fan. Love Hard Ticket to Hawaii and the Malibu Connection and all those films. But, When you're in the modern day, and we are already kind of an irony poisoned film culture to begin with at this point, it is nice to see someone successfully walk that line without tipping too far into, yes, this is cheesy and weird and bizarre, and obviously they didn't have a lot of money when they were making this, and kind of laying it on thick that way, versus like trying to be too austere about it, you know, like trying to add too much pomp and circumstance about something like this of this production size. But I think it's successful. I think you really do feel when you're watching this that this is something that would have been made in 1984. And I think Kurt does a great job of selling that exact thing with the voice talent that he has. and The new score that's been provided by band Voyager. I think the movie just works. And this is gonna be a hoot and a half to watch in a theater and it's not like it's ever going to play at the ice cinema or anything like that (laughs) but i i think this is a movie that'd be best enjoyed with a lot of people having a good time and i think that's beautiful i'm so happy that vinegar syndrome has like gone down this route of trying to like produce things uh and restore things i mean this is an act of preservation i mean there's no way to get the original audio for this movie, so that would just always be lost to time. But it's a way for the movie to get seen, which I think is the most important part. And on top of that, it's very good. So, New York Ninja, the Vinegar Syndrome special edition release is insane, like all of their special edition releases are. Uh, this comes with a lot of business from uh, rewriter and redirector and editor, Kurt Spieler, including an audio commentary, a making of documentary, an interview, an intro to the movie, as well as uh, the music of New York Ninja, which is interviews with members of the band Voyager, uh, locations unmasked, revisiting locations in New York Ninja with Michael Gingold, deleted scenes with commentary, B-roll and outtake montage, uh, sizzle reel, theatrical trailer, and a whole small book about the journey of making this movie from discovering that they had the negatives, to what it took to reconstruct it, and getting the talent. It's a full-fledged release. Uh, Like I said, it'll be great to see it with an audience someday. (laughs) So please, 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 I beg you, please rush out and buy New York Ninja from Vanity Syndrome. And finally, for my pick of the month, we have Fun City Edition's release of the 1979 film debut by director Christopher Pettit. Radio on. This is a special film. It has been listed as one of the 100 greatest British films by Little White Lies. It's a entry into the very rare british road movie genre it is a new wave movie while also being a post-punk movie and like all road movies it's kind of a western and it also feels like it could be a footnote in the uh, new german cinema movement of the uh, 70s but what this movie very simply is is about a man played by david beams named robert who is taking a road trip from London to Bristol after getting news that his brother has passed away due to some tragic circumstances. Also, his brother has left him some tapes to listen to. So he's listening to these tapes as he's driving across the UK. And what's on these tapes and what's on this soundtrack are some of the front and center new wave artists of the time. There are Songs from Kraftwerk, Devo, David Bowie, Robert Fripp, Ian Dury, and so many more on this soundtrack. It's a black and white movie that exists in this liminal space of the end of this particular era, in the UK's history. People are still talking about World War II quite a bit, and it's right before Thatcherism is about to set in and Reaganomics are gonna settle in in the US and it's been called the Winter of Discontent era in the UK. And you feel that all through this movie as Robert travels around the people he picks up, the people he interacts with. Everyone's got a story to tell. Everyone's got this very thick layer of ennui about them. It kind of moses on from like person to person, which is one of my favorite aspects of a road movie. And in addition to this, I mentioned the new German cinema connection to this. Well, that's because Vim Vendors helped usher this movie in. In addition to that, Vim Vendors assistant cameraman Martin Schaefer is the cinematographer for this movie. So it kind of might, uh, you might draw some visual comparisons to Vim Vendors Road trilogy. I know Christopher Pettit himself has said that he wasn't directly inspired by Vim Vendors, but I think he said he owes a debt to him for this movie. But what I find so fascinating about this movie is just how much the movie unfolds with the music and how much it is just from the point of view from Robert. When you're hearing music through the film, it's interrupted, picked up, cut off, continued onward from the most jarring circumstances because all the music you're hearing through the film and all the things you are seeing through the film is completely from Robert's point of view, our protagonist. We rarely ever get scenes where Robert is in the focal point or where he is not there. Uh, there's a couple exceptions, like pointed exceptions to that. I don't know, it just feels like you're going on this journey across the UK. Everything feels so desolate. Everything fe- feels so hopeless, almost. And it's interesting because what I like about westerns is that they're usually about the end of things, which I've mentioned this a couple of times before. And the road movie feels the same way. I think Christopher Pettit was more inspired by Tulane Blacktop, the Monty Hellman road movies, than he was Vim Vendors. So it doesn't feel like we're exiting a particularly nice era. That's the, the end of a particularly prosperous era. You know, westerns generally are about like how everything seems so limitless and everyone grabbing for a piece of the land before like legitimacy sets in this feels more like a this is the end of one era in which people are unhappy when they're about to transition into an era of legitimacy that will in itself give way to its own swaths of misery so it's a fascinating movie in that way and the music's great Obviously, there's much to do about the David Bowie on the soundtrack that opens the movie, which is from his German era. (laughs) Um, The first song is Heroes on the soundtrack, and it's both the English language version and the German version. I don't know. This was a wonderful movie to watch. It's very much like a vibe movie. It also draws a lot of comparisons to, and I'll bring up the name again, Jim Jarmusch, because there is this, like, sense of... I'd say it's like very much like a post-punk, kind of like post-punk movie. So there is a little bit of that like no waviness. There's a little dark undercurrent throughout the entire movie, which I won't spoil for you, but it is one of those movies that like, just pay attention to the details and a story will present itself. And there is some like very dry humor and conversations between people that kind of evoke that like late 70s, early 80s, like New York film scene vibe but it's very much its own thing. I would love to understand why a British road movie is such a rare thing compared to the US and it probably just has to do with the idea that the US is this, at one point, was this like so much to be discovered and so much to do and things seem limitless, whereas like the UK, you know, they've conquered everything and so what is there else to discover, especially on like a personal level? But I'd love to hear more about that and that has sparked an interest in me. This is once again an excellent release from Fun City Editions. It has a lot of carryover from, I guess, a DVD from years and years ago. But just to get into it, there is Before the Explosion of the Image Bank, a newly filmed interview with director Christopher Pettit, a newly recorded audio interview with Christopher Pettit, newly recorded audio commentary by film historian filmmaker Kerala uh who I've mentioned before as being the director of Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, A History of Folk Horror, Uh, an archival interview with Christopher Pettit and producer Keith Griffiths, Radio On Remix 1998, Christopher Pettit's follow-up digital video essay with sound design by WIRE's Bruce Gilbert. Uh, It also includes an image gallery, original theatrical trailer, and a booklet of essays by Glenn Kenny, Jason Wood, Ian Penman, Chris Pettit, and Rudy Wurlitzer. So, you can pick that up from Fun City Editions it's my pick of the month, and just to put all the cards on the table, I would like to screen this someday in Bloomington, Indiana. So maybe keep on the lookout for that in the future. This has been the one-year anniversary of physical media, and it just smells funny. I will be back with what I think is going to be a much lighter December and I will actually be extending the written parts of my review for December to include something that was supposed to be here in November. I will be talking about Criterion's release of the Once Upon a Time in China box set. I just, it got here too late and I didn't have enough time to talk about it and also wanted to do more of a write up about that a spoken review. So keep on the lookout for December. And December looks like a lot of fun, especially from Kino Lorber. I'm also excited to see what's going to come in from some other avenues, but those will be up more mid-month than at the end of the month. So I'm excited for you guys to check those out. So join me again in about two weeks and I'll see you at the movies. Good night.